Welcome to the State of Developer Education, a podcast by Major League Hacking. We explore how technical leaders are creatively tackling the developer education gap to help prepare the next generation of technologists for the real world and build businesses that can adapt to any changes in the technology ecosystem. I'm your host, John Gottfried. Welcome back to the State of Developer Education, everyone. I'm John, your friendly host here from MLH, and I am so excited to have Jordan Violet, the head of developer relations at SailPoint, and Colin McKibben, lead developer advocate at SailPoint, join us for this week's episode. How are you guys doing? Doing good. It's a good evening here in Ohio. Indeed. Thanks for having us, John. Yeah, thank you for uh, being here. So I love to start with all of my guests hearing their origin stories. How did you two first get into programming and tech? I can go first, Colin. For me, it eventually got dubbed the the Xbox story by some of my future colleagues at GE, one of them being Colin, actually. But I got into programming right around fourth or fifth grade for me, which would have been, I guess it's dating myself, which I don't care to do. It's uh, right around 2001, 2002. And I had read on an internet forum called After Dawn that you could actually take these things apart and there was like things you could do with them beyond what they were designed to do. So I ended up getting into Xbox modding and that was really my intro to Visual Basic and to some generic software development. And after that, I was hooked I really wanted to know what more could be created or what more can you do with something beyond what it was originally designed to do. That eventually got dubbed the Xbox story because I told that story during an interview with GE General Electric for a two-year leadership program that they have. And after the interview, I thought, man, that was so goofy. Like, why did I tell this person all about me sitting on the floor modding Xboxes as a kid? And uh, I heard later from Colin, who was already in the program, that story was being passed around the office as this guy who had this really interesting Xbox story. So that was it for me. Modding Xbox has got me into programming. I started my college career as an education major. So I was three years into my degree and then eventually I had to take this uh, computer class, one of these prerequisite computer classes for education. The one they had us recommend was uh, an intro to computers where they basically teach you how to turn a computer on, save an Excel document. I'm like, I'm way past this. No way. So I actually opted to do Introduction to Programming, which would also count towards a credit. And that's where we learned in Visual Basic how to program a calculator. And I think that's all it took, really. I was hooked on programming after that. I switched majors. Ten years later, I still love what I do. That's also where Colin and I met. (laughs) Really? Yep. Colin and I have been friends since university. That's wild. Did it take switching into CS for you guys to meet? We actually met in one of Colin's first classes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's really funny. Small world, I guess. So, Colin, what were you intending to teach when you got your education major? Yeah, high school science. Didn't really have like a particular science that I want to teach. I think they kind of just assign that to you when you go and actually teach at a school. But yeah, that level of science is what I was looking at. That's awesome. I, I really intended to become a high school history teacher for a long time. And similar to you guys, I kind of got like dragged into tech through a combination of passion and opportunity and all sorts of different things. So I I love hearing that. So you both started in engineering. You got into that GE program. I was doing some research on it. It looked like a really unique way to enter the industry. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, what was it like to go into a leadership development program as I think your first sort of career in tech? It was an amazing experience. Uh, 
if you can join a company that has one of these leadership programs, I highly recommend it. It's kind of an extension of college, the soft landing into the workforce. GE's leadership program in particular was four different rotations over two years. You did six months in each rotation and you had the option to try out different GE business units or different roles within a company. And so that exposed me to software engineering, architecture, disaster recovery, and project management all in the span of two years. And it really kickstarted my career, I think. Yeah, I joined not too long after Colin. Like I said, part of my interview process, the story went around the office and I heard later from Colin about how my interview process had gone. Thankfully, it had gone well because I had also gotten a job join this GE leadership program. The history, it was originally called the IMLP program. I think they changed the name about every two years. It became the ITLP program. And now it is currently called the DTLP program. But it was great, especially if you weren't 100% sure what you wanted to do next. You knew you wanted to work in technology. You knew you wanted to be around engineering. You knew you wanted to be around software. But like Colin said, over two years, you do four six-month rotations, and they're always in very vastly different areas of business. So you really got to touch a lot of different things across a lot of different GE businesses, too, if you wanted to. And then at the end of that, you could decide, okay, well, what you know, what is it that I really want to do next? What do I want to go deep in? So Colin said soft landing, although in some ways not. You're kind of in that six-month period. They say, hey, we know you don't know anything about disaster recovery. You have six months to figure out what our problem is and learn how to do that disaster recovery and then implement a solution in that time. So it was also it was pretty tough at times in some ways too, but it really helped you to grow as an engineer and it really helped you to grow as a leader in the business too because you were able to see in a very short amount of time the impact that your work can have on the business. How much of it was like learning by doing versus going to workshops or lectures or things like that? 99% of it was learning by doing. You were literally just felt like you were dropped in a jungle that had no pathways and you just had to figure out what the problem was. The thing is you had to learn the technology, then figure out the problem and then implement your solution in that technology in that six-month window. So again, like Colin said, it was kind of nice because it was a soft landing into tech and that you didn't immediately get dropped into one single job you had to know how to do immediately. They knew that you weren't going to know this this work coming in, but it was also rigorous in that you had a very short amount of time to figure it out and then deliver on it. What was sort of like, I don't know, the general bent of people in this program? And I'm really curious about this because it's such a unique way to enter the industry, but like, was this all star students like were you guys like top of your class in cs was it more people who just were like builders and doers like what was sort of the prototypical like leadership trainee at ge it was more business majors like you you have a mix of like you know business majors and maybe some information systems where they know a little bit about computers but more of a business focus actually the technical side of it was the minority you know, a very few percent of the people in this program were computer science majors and knew how to program and do all those technical things. I think nearing the end of it, that the shift of the program got into more technology focus. And Jordan, maybe you can talk more to that. The one thing that I would say is pervasive, regardless of if they were more business or more technical, it was very competitive. The program itself wasn't necessarily competitive. The program itself was actually pretty relaxed. But the types of people that a program like that attracted were very, not always, but generally type A, very driven. They like to compete type people. Do you fall into that category? Absolutely. (laughs) I'll just be in the corner coding away and let them all figure it out. (laughs) 
Yeah, competing for like a better, uh, you know, runtime or more optimized code, something like that. Yeah, different kind of competition. Yeah, very. That's really cool. So how did you make that transition from that kind of program to DevRel, right? Because like when I was looking over, I think both of your histories, you both kind of just like jumped one day into (laughs) DevRel roles. And I would assume that a program like that is setting you up for a leadership track at GE, right? Yeah, it was my second to last rotation. This is my third rotation. Coming up at the end of it, I was living in south side of Boston, working at GE headquarters. And I had read a blog post about developer relations. I don't know if it just come across an RSS feed or something, but I had seen a blog post for that. And I thought, well, that sounds really interesting because I love people. If anybody who knows me knows that I have a genuine love for people. And I thought it was so cool that your job could be focusing on developers, not necessarily the end solution, the software itself, not being a product engineer, but focusing on the developers who use something. So that I read that blog post, tuck it away about a year and a month later. So that was January of 2018. Come fast forward to February of 2019. I had gotten a job at FireEye, which is a security company. And I had gotten a job as a solutions architect on their technical partnerships team. And within the first two to three weeks, they said, hey, here's our product, Helix. We want you to learn how the APIs work. That way you can teach our partners to integrate with our product. And it was only a few days looking at them that they were just, I think the right word might be a little tough, but the right word would probably be abhorrent. They were pretty bad. And I don't know what got into me to email my boss or actually my CTO at the time. And I just said, hey, I'm not sure that we should be pointing partners to these. And here's why. And Thankfully, he was a very kind and gracious person. And he reached out to me and said, hey, why do you think that this is? And what do you think that we should do about it? I guess the TLDR was I said, hey, I read a blog post a year ago about developer relations. You guys should probably maybe do that. And thankfully, he didn't hire anybody for that. He asked me if I was interested in learning. And so I took him up on that opportunity. And I had no idea what I was doing. I went to DevRelCon that year, 2019, just hoping to kind of soak up what I would learn from everybody around me. And I think we built something pretty cool in the time that we were there, but I had known by that same year, I knew that I was hooked and I wanted to be in developer relations. And later that year, I needed to add somebody to my team, which is where Colin's story would come in. Yeah. Up until that point, I had actually changed from GE to Ford Motor Company as a cloud architect. And I was working on their APIs there, mainly their API specifications, API gateway, making their specs better. It's actually kind of a good segue into DevRel, but at the time I had no idea what DevRel was. I've used the output of DevRel, like good API specifications to build integrations, but I had no idea what it was. And then one day Jordan calls me up and he's like, hey, I'm starting this new program at Fire. I called Developer Relations. Want to join? I'm like, what the heck is this? So he gives me the rundown of it. I'm like, you know, it's not really glamorous. I just said YOLO, right? (laughs) I think I had that old GE mentality of like the rotational program where, you know, you're changing it up every six months and it's kind of nice to be able to just change things like that try something really new at that time kind of getting tired of being an architect at ford i'm like okay let's do this devil thing three years in now i'm still loving what i'm doing it's so varied so many different things you can do within devrel so i love it you mentioned you like to be the guy in the corner coding right like how do you think that sort of your two different personalities. I'm getting like very different vibes from you two also. Like, how do you think that manifests in how you approach DevRel? You know, there's old Colin and there's new Colin. So old Colin definitely would have been comfortable programming in the corner. You know, I think having been in DevRel so long, I've really flexed that 
community, you know, personality. So it's less about me just going off and doing my own thing now. It's more about enabling others in our community to contribute and give back. Yeah, and I would say just to compliment Colin, one thing that we both do well is we love just getting on a call together and saying, let's solve a problem. It's not open up a new Jira ticket. Let's not create a couple Confluence pages. Let's really like get on a whiteboard or a virtual whiteboard in this case these days. And we love solving problems together. I'd say where we start to vary is Colin is very detail-oriented and process-driven. Colin does not want to get thing into things that are messy, <laughs> like maybe how do you scale a technical program inside of a business where you start getting into like company politics. But once we generate that idea, Colin, tell me if this is not an accurate description at all, but I would say I tend to go in and evangelize that idea inside and outside the business. Hey, here's why you should care about what we're doing, whether the contact is internal or external. And then Colin is the one actively building that process then. I mean, it seems to be a good teamwork and combination that we have. Yeah, I always joke with Jordan. He's doing the road show, you know, promoting <laughs> our program throughout the company, which is very important to do. You know, you got to make sure that the company understands what we're doing and why it's important. But like you said, yeah, we formulate these ideas together and I take it, run with it, and make it a thing. I love having both of you on because I feel like we have two different perspectives here in the same sort of conversation. Like a lot of the people I talk to are only management or only individual contributors. And they are fairly distinct in how you have to think about DevRel and how you think about programs. One of the things I would love to like dig into a little more here, perhaps from both of your perspectives, is the idea of improving developer experience and educational resources. Like you said that at FireEye, you know, you didn't think the experience was up to par. And that was sort of how you pitched yourself into a DevRel role. What goes into taking something that exists, but probably isn't good enough and getting it up to a place where you're proud of it. I think the first thing is to understand why it is in the place that it's in today and how did it get there? So the way that I joined SailPoint, I think that the context matters there too. The manager and CTO at FireEye who gave me the opportunity to learn how to build developer relations, even though I didn't know what I was doing yet, he eventually moved on to become the executive vice president of product at SailPoint. And actually, I almost died of COVID March and April of 2020. And he had already left SailPoint. And I got a text from him one day just asking how my health was doing. How was I doing as a person? That kind of blew my mind because I just wondered, like, this guy left FireEye already. He doesn't have to pretend to care. And so, you know, it just must be very genuine. And he really was interested in making sure that I was okay, even though he had already moved on from the company. And we had talked for a couple months and he said, hey, I think I want to do developer relations again at SailPoint. So I started there in July of 2020. And the first thing that I did is I looked at what was the developer experience landscape today? You know, let's put myself in the shoes of a developer and see what it's like to use this stuff from the outside. So once you have a good landscape of what is the developer experience today? It was really important to understand why it is that way and how it got there. So in our case, although there's many things we could pick at, we'll talk about APIs. It's a pretty common thing in the developer world. Our API specifications, they were something that was there, but they were never a priority. Developers at SailPoint at the time were never looked at as a first-class user. So over time, we helped other organizations and other teams understand that 
developers today are decision makers when it comes to purchasing software. And you can say this for almost any software, but especially in cybersecurity and IT, you can't build an application that lives in a silo. You have to build an application that plays well with the other applications in an IT's organization. And the way that those applications communicate is through APIs. So when a customer is coming in today, they're not just looking at what does your application do? They're looking at what does your application do and how does it play well with everything else I have in my IT landscape? And the way that happens is through APIs and the people that build those are developers or sometimes what we call non-developer developers or kind of IT people who end up in a position where they have to use APIs. And once we help other areas of the business make that connection, all of a sudden, a lot of people were asking about APIs and how can these things be better. But Colin can talk about some of the things that he implemented to help turn those things around then too. Yeah, and just, just to reiterate what Jordan said, you know, coming into SailPoint early on at the DevRel program, you know, it, it was important for us to understand, again, why things were the way they are and then how did they get there so that we could formulate a plan to correct that and make sure it's correct going forward. So in the API specs particularly, it was, Kind of a case of, you know, we have microservice teams in sale points. Every team is responsible for a small slice of our entire API landscape. But there's one repository where all of our API specs live. And so there wasn't a lot of communication as to how our API standards should be and what APIs look like, what are, you know, what's the standardized response and input requirements. So one of the first things we did was create an API guild. You know, we got buy-in from all the engineering teams. Each engineering team would, you know, submit a member that would be a part of this guild and we just hashed out what our standards for APIs would be. And then we also created a linter. So an automated tool that every time someone pushed a new spec change to our APIs, it would automatically lint to their changes and say, hey, are you following the rules that we put forth in our guidelines or not? And then specifically, you know, like what's not correct. And so that combination of having you know, rigid guidelines that leave nothing to the imagination, very strict on what we expect, plus an automated linter that automatically checks it so we don't need human eyes to review every pull request, really helped turn our APIs around. And over time, over the last two years, they've just been getting better and better. Uh, but we've taken that same kind of model and, and did it in other areas. So our technical documentation, our community forum, we just over and over again, we kind of apply that same model, that same process. So when you're building that linter and when you're sort of it sounds like you did an audit of all of your APIs, all of the developer-facing documentation, tools, anything that a developer might interact with, and then design standards that all the teams had to adhere to. Like, what were the design principles that informed those standards? Like, where did those come from? We borrowed from the industry. So, you know, the, the API specs in particular, we used Zalando's API guidelines. You know, they have a very, very robust set of guidelines that they use for their own APIs. So it's open source. We just forked it and our API guild changed areas of those guidelines that, you know, we wanted to do differently in SailPoint. But, you know, 80% of it we left intact because they were just such good guidelines to begin with. But that gave us a really strong footing right out the gate. We didn't have to entirely reinvent the wheel. And yeah. Either fortunate or unfortunate, depending on if you're glass half empty or glass half full, there was really nothing else for developers here. There were no developer tools. There was no documentation for developers. Even within the API specifications at the time, there was very little documentation as to what you know different collections at different endpoints did. I would say what was there was mostly done by kind of what we would say is individual heroics or you know we had individuals 
within the business who still cared about the developer experience, even if it wasn't their primary focus for their role. And they would do what they could when they could to make that experience better for developers. But even with their great efforts, there was a very, very small thing that existed at all for developers when we first started here. And so what is the state of the land now? Like you, you know, designed this linter, you rolled out standards, you built buy-in through a guild from all the engineering teams. Like what did that get you to? Yeah. Are you familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Yeah. But you could describe it for people who aren't. Yeah. So Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's this idea where it's essentially a pyramid and there's uh, five to eight different levels depending on kind of what the interpretation is. But for Maslow's, it's the idea that needs lower on the pyramid need to be fulfilled before you can effectively address the needs for higher ones. So for example, like you need to meet your physiological needs first. Like you need food, you need water. I know love from your family or love from your friends or, or maybe your children or your spouse. It may be important. Some people would say that it's the most important thing to them, but it can't matter to you if you don't have food and you don't have water, right? So it's this idea that you have to fulfill things lower on the hierarchy before any fulfillment higher on the hierarchy can be of any real value. So I don't know, it was maybe a year ago or something like that. Again, Colin and I were just talking through a problem and we're just workshopping it on a whiteboard. And I said, man, it's really like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So we just started drawing it right there. And we have what we call the developer's hierarchy of needs. And for us, the lowest layer, the most important layer is the product or platform's functionality. So that's like your APIs or your webhooks, for example. The functionality has to be there. If we tell developers that we're returning A, A has to be returned. If we're returning B, they need to know that it returns B. We've seen in API specifications where things get returned that were not in the spec. We've seen where things are in the spec and they don't get returned. Or even worse is the functionality uh, is not predictable. And then last of that is that the functionality actually does the things that they need it to do. So to us, that's the lowest layer of the developer's hierarchy is that the platform and the product needs to meet the needs from a functionality perspective. After that, we say is context and content. So we say, okay, do we have documentation? Do we have API specs? Do we have guides, videos, blogs? Can we provide context around what this platform is or what this product is, how these APIs work? Where do you get information to put into these APIs? This is something you don't see talked about a lot. They'll say, okay, well, here's what the input. We're taking a string of something, but where might I get that information from? So a lot of context on where's the information coming from? How do you use the tool? And then what do you do with the output of that API or that developer tool? So then we focused on that for a while. After that, we started saying, okay, now we have a good platform. APIs are getting better. We have documentation. We have SDKs or I should say we have documentation. Then we said, we're going to put out SDKs. Okay, now we're going to put out an SDK. We're going to actually build a sale point managed postman collection. We're going to put out a command line interface. We're going to build tools that now that you have the platform, now that you have the documentation, you have the context of how it all works, let's provide tools so we can get you started faster. So rather than you having to build your own HTTP requests, wrapping around our APIs, let's say, hey, you know, import sale point in Python, and now you're writing code in the first two minutes rather than the first day. And then the last thing for us is really bringing it all together. The last two, I'll kind of lump them together, which is community and then contribution. So once you have this great developer experience, then you want to build a community around it, right? You want to have a forum. You want to get user groups. As you know, we recently had our first conference for developers, developer days. So then you can really start bringing people together around the experience that you've built. And then the final piece of the hierarchy is contribution or, you know, how can you convince your developer community 
to be a part of it enough to contribute back to really those lower four layers, right? They could really contribute at community, at tooling, at content, or at the platform functionality. So that's kind of how we approach what we decided to work on next. That's awesome. I love the concept of like a developer's hierarchy of needs. I feel like I may have seen that in a blog post at some point too, that like, it's a really interesting way of describing how to prioritize what to do first on a DevRel team, right? Which it sounds like is sort of how you used it as well. Where does like love fall in there? Because I remember you <laughs> earlier, you were like, oh, I love helping people. I love serving people. I love like, you know, enabling developers. Like where does that fall in your hierarchy of needs? I would say it's across all of them. For me as a developer, Colin, you can answer too, but for me is friction. Anytime I'm met with friction at any layer is when I start to lose love. So the absence of friction for me as a developer is the love. That's what makes me really love what I'm doing. Yeah. And, you know, for me, love is like, you know, I've been a developer. I know what it's like to be a developer. And I know one of the best experiences I can have is everything in a product is open. So open source code open documentation, open forums, you know, the less signups we have, less logins, less paywalls we have, the better the experience is. So everything that we do is completely open. And so that's how I think we show our love as well. That's yeah. a good question. I like that. <laughs> yeah. So the idea of openness, I want to dig into that a little bit, because I think it's a really natural inclination for developers and developer adjacent people right? The idea of making your data open, your specs open, your docs open, all of these different things. But businesses are often very resistant to that idea. How do you sort of like balance that perspective of like, we need control, we need quality, we need all of these things that are very proprietary and internal and require a headcount versus we need openness and community, which are very different strategies, but one that comes up frequently in developer-facing products. Yeah, I mean, I think there's businesses naturally want to keep things secret. You know, they want it to be behind a paywall, behind a login. They want it to be exclusive. And, you know, I think for us, again, it comes back to, you know, who are developers, right? Look at that developer persona. Developers hate friction. They will go somewhere else as soon as they encounter the slightest bit of friction. And so if you have to log in, you have to sign up, that's a big turnoff right away. And so when it comes to our forum, just make that open. You know, if you want to go there, lurk, read, make that open. The advantage is it's Google indexable. So you can Google search and find answers you need and get the help that you need. If you want to contribute, then yeah, you got to log in. So we have a username attached to you, but you can do that certainly. But also just I think it's also a sign of, of trust. You know, we're putting trust in our developer community so that they give us their trust back. And it's kind of like two-way relationship. You know, if we're being closed off and, you know, keeping things close to the chest, how are people going to trust us? And I, and I think keeping it open is the way to go. And sometimes you have to convince the business of certain aspects to, you know, do this. This is the right thing to do. In the case of our forum, you know, we could show the business, hey, people can Google search answers for sale point. Before they couldn't do that. You'd have to go into the forum and use that search, but Google is a very good search platform. So that helped make our case. When it comes to open source software, again, I think it's kind of the same thing. It's like you make it open and then the maintenance of open source software is reduced, right? You get contributions from the outside. You get people submitting their ideas, their bug reports and their own code contributions. And suddenly the maintenance of creating and maintaining these tools is lessened. Yeah, I could add a couple things to that. One thing that I think about is, you know, you'll hear a lot 
in some businesses, I think especially in SaaS is for the customer, it's like time to value. Like how quickly can our customer gain value out of our product? And I think about the early days in university learning programming. It's like you look for repeatability, right? You don't want to copy the same function of code everywhere. And you'd say, okay, well, if I'm doing that a lot, I'm going to opt these or I'm going to decouple that into a function. That way I can call that function everywhere I need to, right? So things like SDKs, it's like, okay, well, every customer who wants to integrate with our product, they want to extend it. They're going to have to write code around our APIs. They're going to have to make sure that code's taking care of things like 200, 500 responses, retry logic. If there's any pagination that has to be done. When you start to see that every single customer is going to have to do that, we say, well, why don't we decouple that for them? Why don't we do it once? We do it well, and we make sure that those SDKs are available to them, and they're open source, so that way they can see what was done. They can verify that it's done in the way that they would agree that they would want to implement it in their code base. And once you tie it back to customers' time to value, then there's more teams that are on board with it. I think the same thing for community. You sometimes hear on the security industry, you'll hear the phrase security through obscurity. It's this idea that you rely on the design or the implementation of something to be secret as the main method of that thing being secure. And I think sometimes you see that with product organizations where they say, well, for this to be great, we have to maintain and own every component of it. But the reality is you can't possess more than the collective knowledge of all of your customers at some point. You have one or two customers, maybe you know a little more than them. But when you have hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands or maybe even millions of customers, you really can't beat their collective knowledge and skill. So I see it as our job is to be a shepherd of a platform where they can contribute to that community and they're collectively going to make it better, right? You know, somebody will say, well, how can you have open source code? Aren't you worried that someone's going to submit something nefarious? Well, no, because you have tens, dozens, hundreds, or even thousands of other developers that are going to be looking at those pull requests, right? So I look at, at community and our product, like our docs and our SDKs as you know, the more open they are, the more that our customers are going to contribute because it's something that they want to be successful too. I feel like this idea of community contributions and open source dovetails really nicely with the ambassador program that you all just launched. And I love the concept of ambassador programs. I feel like it's a really interesting way to engage with the developer platform and sort of contribute back to that like community. When you created your, you know, ambassador program, like, what did you want it to accomplish? Like, what were you trying to do with it beyond the obvious of, you know, extending your sort of like reach and empowering people? Like, what were some of the things that you wanted to achieve there? Yeah, so up until three months ago, when we announced our ambassador program for pilot contributors. A lot of the forum interactions were being answered by our team, our DevRel team. So we would go in and answer quite a, a large bulk of the questions coming into the forum. And as your community grows, but your team stays the same size, it doesn't scale at all. You got more questions to answer. It's taking up more of our time, taking more of our focus away from other items that we want to focus on, like content and tools and stuff. So we started looking at our community and you know we had actually a category in our community for IIQ customers. And our team is not knowledgeable on the IIQ product at all, yet that community was entirely self-sustaining. We would never go in there, but they would answer each other's questions. So we knew, I think early on, that like we have contributors in our community. We just need to engage them, incentivize them to contribute back by giving them recognition 
for doing the things that they do and also rewards that they would find valuable that would help them not only in their own personal journey, but help others as well. So, you know, part of the reward system is, you know, if you're an ambassador, you get recognition on a dedicated page on our developer portal. So they can see your biography, your picture, who you work for. And there's also for higher tiers of ambassadors, certain rewards that our community finds valuable. So free professional service hours. You know, there's this, the question of who helps the ambassadors, right? For ambassadors helping everyone else, typically they're going to have harder questions. And so our professional services is paid support in our company that usually helps with tough, challenging problems. So we give free professional service hours to our ambassadors, even free demo tenants. So, you know, Identity Now, which is our main SaaS product, is not free. It requires a, you know, a license to use that. But we offer free tenants to those contributors who make enough contributions so that they have their own personal tenant. They don't have to share it with anyone else. And now they can try out brand new features in the platform, things they might not have access to in their, their paid version. And that just helps them understand the platform better, but also help other people. But I think also there's an important aspect of our ambassador program where there is a required minimum contribution to the ambassador program. Not anyone can just sign up and automatically be an ambassador. And I think what that lends itself to is making prestige around the ambassador program. So if you're an ambassador, you've done something. You've done something that you can be proud of and you can really show that to the world. And so there is that level of almost exclusivity, but in a good way. Like you're actually earning that title. Attainable yeah. exclusivity. Yeah, very attainable, but you have to do something. You can't just sign up. And I would say to add to that, you know, one of the first things that Colin and I did is we looked at our forum. We even looked at GitHub contributions. It's not just the forum, right? It's our docs. It's our tools. We had developers who actually spoke. We did this thing called Community Spotlight, where we spotlit a lot of different developers in our community and the really unique solutions that they're building. We looked at those contributions, and we got, I think, our top 60 or 70 contributors. And we actually met with them, and we said, you know, hey, here's what we're trying to do. We're trying to build a community that's sustainable. So when you come here, you know, these products for some of these people, identity governance is their careers. You know, they're here for 10 years, 15, some people even 20 plus years. So, you know, we say, hey, we want to build a community that is sustainable. What are things that you want for your contributions? What do you find value in for your contributions back to a community like this? Some of them, we even took to lunch. We went to lunch and had some barbecue with a group of developers. And through those online interactions and through those fun in-person interactions, they gave us a wealth of knowledge. They said, if I'm going to contribute a blog post or if I'm going to contribute solutions in a forum where I have to solve a problem for somebody else, here's what I'm looking for in return. And then Colin and I, again, we got our virtual whiteboard and Colin and I met for a couple of weeks and we came up with how could we deliver that for these people. And... I would say there's, there's no better way to build an ambassador program. If anybody listening to this is looking to build one, is talk to your users. Ask them what they want. Don't try to guess. Don't really put the carrot out in front of them with stuff like, you know, you just get a badge in our forum or we'll tag your name somewhere. But ask them what is it that they want that they feel is valuable for their time. Remember that these aren't people. They're not just objects to be gamified, but they're real people with real lives and real careers. And like Colin said, it's like, how can we elevate them personally in their career? Like, how can we give them personal recognition? How can we also help them in their business, like professional service hours or free access to our product that Colin mentioned? Yeah, there's an art to creating those kinds of programs. You're right. It's not just numbers. And 
it's kind of one of those things where you know it when you see it, right? Like, is this a program that is helping people and enabling them to accomplish something they care about? Or is it like a numbers game and they feel different to the end developer? But it sounds like you all are, you know, in the right headspace and maybe like sharing that love, right? I'm curious, like, how do you teach someone to be a good ambassador? Like, how do you sort of give them the resources to level up their game as a community member? I would actually say they're teaching us how to be a good ambassador. The reality is, although, you know, we're supposed to learn our product and we do as much as we can, you know, we don't know our product as well as somebody who's been using it for 10 years or somebody who's been in the identity space for 20 plus years. So I would actually say it's somewhat the inverse. I think that we look to our most experienced ambassadors and even some of our newer ambassadors. They're kind of teaching us what a good ambassador looks like. I would say that I look at our job more as how do we recognize those things and then how do we encourage other ambassadors to do those same things. A good example is we noticed that our top contributors in the community, they had all filled out their community profile. They added a a profile picture so you could see who this person is. And so when Colin and I saw that, we said, that's a requirement for the ambassador program now. So to become an ambassador, you actually have to fill out your profile. You have to add a profile picture and make sure that people know who you are. You're not just some name on a forum post. You're not just some name on a recent pull request where you updated some documentation, but you're Brian, you're Mark, you're Zach, you're somebody who has actually done this work and you're a real person. So I would say we look to them to tell us what a good ambassador is and we just try to formalize it into a program. Yeah, and you know, there's definitely an aspect of lead by example. So like Jordan was mentioning, our top ambassadors, they're doing such a good job. They're empathetic. They're answering questions thoroughly. They're always active. And I think that just resonates with the rest of the community. And they see, you know, what it takes to be an ambassador, what a good ambassador is. But also our team also reflects that every day we go into the forum. So we're always being courteous, being respectful, and just again leading by example. So community is very much organic in that sense. I like that leading by example thing. There's something I noticed in our community in particular, now that you say that, is our forum, if it's the first time that you're posting in the forum, there's a little banner that pops up at the top that it's only shown to staff in the forum or ambassadors. And whenever my team sees that, we always say, hey, Jane, welcome to the forum. We're so glad to have you here. Now then let's help you. And after a while, Without any intervention at all, I noticed ambassadors started doing that as well, welcoming each other to the forum because they can also see that banner. I would say I, I resonate with that, what Colin said about leading by example, for sure. That's really cool. I, I love seeing those dynamics emerge like organically in different communities. Awesome. So zooming out a little bit from SailPoint to kind of finish off our conversation here, I'd love to hear from you guys, like thinking back on your own journeys getting into tech and you know now enabling a lot of developers what are some things that you would like to see change or evolve around how developers learn technology and learn, you know, platforms? I would say for me is to see, again, friction reduced for getting started as a developer. I know from a business perspective, the faster a developer can get started on my platform, the faster that they can build an integration and go deep with my product, the stickier of a customer they're going to become. So I would like to see less friction around developer education, like Colin said, open everything, open source documentation, open source tools, a completely open community. 
but also that within the product itself, right? Like I want to get started as quickly as I can. I don't want to pay for a product and then have to pay for more training to learn how to use that product, right? As a developer, I want to get started easily. And the easier that a, cus- a company can make it for me to get started, the faster I'm going to get up, you know, ramped up on their product and get started quickly. So that's what I would say is continue to reduce the friction for developers to get started. Yeah, Jordan and I are in line with that. It's, it's definitely the friction. The less friction you have, the easier it's going to be for developers to learn different tools and products. So that's really, I think, where you know, every SaaS company should be focused is how do we reduce that friction? Awesome. I love it. So the question I always like to ask folks to finish up on here, it's kind of just like a funny thought experiment, but I, I find it really interesting. If you think about like the wider world of tech or science or, you know, really just interesting people who have created interesting things, is there anyone that you would just want to aspirationally take to lunch? Like if you could grab a couple hours of like someone's time and pick their brain, like is there someone that you would love to meet and, you know, talk to? I love the games that Valve puts out. You know, I love Team Fortress, Half-Life, all those things. And I think I would like to take Gabe Newell to dinner and lunch. And just ask him, when is Half-Life 3 coming up? You and like <laughs> everyone on Reddit, right? I'll get the answer for everyone. <laughs> yeah, seriously. For me, you know, like, I guess I technically have a Twitter, but I don't use it. I don't follow anybody. I don't have an Instagram. I don't have a Facebook. I guess it's somewhat antithesis to DevRel, right? I'm not really on social platforms. I'm not really one to, I guess, fawn over, you know, maybe like tech executives or billionaires. You know, they don't really have a direct impact on my life. I was trying to think about it really quick while Colin was answering. I would probably choose somebody who's had a direct impact on my life that I haven't had the opportunity to meet which is not really a hard concept to think about in our world, right? You can meet people all over the world that you talk to online. You may never have even met them. I would say in the last two years in particular, I received a lot of incredible guidance and advice and just general learnings in developer relations specifically from Bear Douglas in developer relations. She was most recently at Slack. So Bear, if you're out there, I'd love to buy you lunch one day and and really just get to talk to you in person and thank somebody who's had a direct impact on me. I wrote a paper about Bill Gates when I was in like eighth grade about how I wanted to be in technology. But the reality is, you know, he hasn't had a direct impact on me, right? So yeah, that's what I would probably pick is somebody who's had a direct impact on my life. I love that. And Bear is a great human being. So I, I think that's a very attainable <laughs> lunch uh, meeting. That's awesome. Well, thank you both so much for your time and sharing all of your thoughts and wisdom and experience here. Is there anywhere that you want people to find you if they've listened to the episode and enjoyed it? For me, it'd be LinkedIn. Like I said, I don't have any other social platforms. (laughs) Yeah, LinkedIn. That works. I feel like we could do an entire episode about social presence in DevRel. There's a lot of varying opinions on it here. But I, I like that you all are focused on the fundamentals. It's definitely important. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Definitely check out Jordan and Colin on LinkedIn there. Uh, They do post some interesting stuff. I was reading it earlier. And if you enjoyed listening, subscribe, and we'll be putting out more episodes every week. So thank you, everyone, and happy hacking. The State of Developer Education is brought to you by Major League Hacking. To find out more about Major League Hacking and how we're educating the next generation of developers and helping the world's leading companies reach them, visit sponsor.mlh.io. And make sure to search for developer education in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen and click like and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And if you like it, please don't forget to leave a review and we'll give you a shout out on a future podcast. On behalf of the team here at Major League Hacking, thanks for listening and helping us empower the next generation of technologists. Happy hacking! Thank <laughs> you.